Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Good morning, everyone. That was actually a really nice summary of what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be delving into this a little bit um, deeper this morning. Um, So thanks for joining us, whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching online. As Jared said at the start, it's really great that we have the technology that we can be able to do this. Um, As a high school teacher, I really appreciate this technology because I've had to get really good at... um, relating with kids virtually and using um, all these new platforms and technologies that we need to to teach online. So what I'd like to do today is make use of some of this technology um, and use use what I use at school with the kids and try it with you guys here in the room and people watching online. Uh, What I'd like to do is get your input uh, in an online brainstorm answering the question, what are some examples of people who our society considers to be great? Another way to think of great might be successful. So what are some examples of people who our society would consider to be great or successful? So as we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks, Jesus and his followers have been slowly making their way towards Jerusalem, uh, where Jesus would go on to be arrested and crucified. And today we're going to focus on a part of this journey where Jesus explores this idea of greatness and success. What does it look like to be considered great or successful, to have made it? What does it look like in our society? And what does it look like Um, from Jesus' perspective? Does he have a different perspective on this? So hopefully you've had a chance now to visit that um, website and write down a name or two. Um, Gary, if you could now please lock it for us so um, that we don't get the screen changing anymore. And then, fingers crossed, the technology will work and we'll pop over and, and have a look what everyone has said. There we go. Nice. So it worked. Excellent. Now, the bigger ones, that's, that means more people voted on them. So the bigger it is, the more people said that. Um, so have a look at these names that are on here. What do these people have in common? There's a lot of different ones on here, and maybe you have different reasons to what I'm going to say, but um, a few things that I I can see here, um, there are quite a few famous people in this list, the people that are well-known, that are influential, okay, that they're considered great and successful. Other people here are quite rich and powerful, okay, so maybe that makes them successful. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. Some people have had a huge impact on society. Maybe like Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa. Um, They've they've made our society or a part of society a lot better and that's why we consider them to be great 
or successful. Some people um, are really talented. So maybe celebrities, for example, or sports people, they have a special talent that sets them above everyone else. And so that's why we think they're um, great and successful. So there are a whole lot of reasons um, why we consider someone great and successful. So thank you very much for this input. I'm really glad that it worked exactly as I hoped it would. But so from this, what does greatness and success look like? I think this picture shows it quite nicely that um, in general, our societies, and from your poll as well, our society sees um, most people sort of floating along on their balloons and then great and successful people, they're the ones that are launching off sky high in their rockets. They're a cut above everybody else. And that's what makes them great and successful. And the reasons that they are great and successful might be things like they have a lot of followers, a lot of influence. Um, they have a lot of power or wealth. Uh, they're more talented than other people or have had a big impact in some way. And so that makes them a cut above everybody else. Now, none of these things are necessarily bad, but is this Jesus' idea of success and greatness as well? That's what we want to, or I invite you to explore with me today. And the way we're going to do that is um, by looking at Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. So if you want to grab your Bibles or follow along with me um, on the screen, let's start reading at verse 32. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now when I was first preparing this, I was wondering why are they astonished and afraid? They're just walking along a road. Um, and to understand this, we need to actually go back a little bit in the text. Uh, just a bit earlier, Jesus had predicted his death to his disciples. And then Luke 9.51 tells us that Jesus now had set his face or resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he knew what was coming, but he was determined to get to Jerusalem, to knew what he must do and face everything he needs to face. And so he set out resolutely for Jerusalem. So there must have been this air of foreboding around the place and the disciples and followers knew that something was coming up, but they didn't really know what. And so this amazed and scared them. Let's keep reading on. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. It's such a clear picture of the horrible things that are going to happen to Jesus. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for it because it's going to be horrific for them. But they just don't really get it, as we'll see. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
So James and John had completely missed what Jesus had been saying. He'd been talking about his torture and his death that was coming up and he must have been pretty apprehensive at this stage because this isn't going to the dentist. This is really bad. But they're focused on something completely different. Earlier on, um, Jesus had promised his 12 disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones and judge Israel when Jesus comes back in glory. And this had really caught their imagination. Their beloved nation of Israel was at this time occupied by the Romans, and Jesus is talking about um, renewing the kingdom. So what could that mean but that he was going to throw out the Romans and re-establish the nation of Israel, like back in the glory days of King David? And these guys were his closest followers, so they were going to follow him in this uprising and then rule Israel with him, and this really excited them. And James and John, they were two of Jesus' inner circle, his closest friends. So they thought, we better get in there and secure our seats um, next to Jesus, the seats of power, before other people get in there. And so they're so preoccupied with this that they completely miss the apprehension and the dread that their friend and teacher must be going through and the horrific future that he's going to be facing. Let's keep reading. Verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus sets up the question for... Oh, sorry, we'll read a little bit more. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. So Jesus set up the question to get a negative response. He was hinting to them that they probably don't really know what they're talking about, particularly when they say so easily that, yeah, we can share the suffering that you're going to be suffering. It turns out that in Acts 12, um, we read that James was actually the first of the 12 disciples to be killed um, for his belief in Jesus. And John's future, it's a little bit less clear, but church tradition tells us that he had his fair share of persecutions. Um, apparently, he was boiled alive in oil and survived it. Um, he was subject to slave labour and to exile. Um, but he does go on to live to an old age and die of natural causes, unlike the other disciples. But so it turns out that these two disciples first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we come back to the question that I started with. What does greatness and success look like in God's kingdom? We've seen from the poll and from what Jesus said here as well, what greatness looks like in our society. Um, that great, successful people, they're a cut above everyone else. They lord it above other people. They've got power, authority, status, followers. They've got people who serve them. But in Jesus' kingdom, as seems to be the case so often, this gets turned completely upside down. 
Jesus says that his followers are going to be servants. Now, this isn't too controversial because back then and now, um, we think that, for example, those in political office, they should serve the people and we hold them in high regard if they do so. But Jesus takes it one step further. He takes it to the extreme because he says that they shouldn't just be servants, but slaves and slaves of everyone. Now, what are slaves? Slaves, they don't get paid. They're at the bottom of the social ladder. There's no honour or prestige in being a slave. No one wants the job and definitely nobody thinks that you're successful if you're a slave. And yet in God's kingdom and in God's economy, slaves are the greatest. What does this mean? To answer this, Jesus uses himself as the model. He says in verse 45 that even he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now let's just think about this for a little minute. Let's remember who Jesus is here. He's not just some random guy off the street. He's God. He created the whole universe. But as Philippians 2 verse 6 to 8 says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this Jesus, who had all the status, all the greatness and all the success, he became a servant of all and a ransom for many. Now, a ransom is a payment that's made for the release of a captive. So Jesus is saying that he would be the faithful servant, he would give up his life, die on a Roman cross, and because he is God, his death would be sufficient payment to set us free from the slavery of sin that we're finding ourselves in and reconcile us with God. And this is the absolute foundation on which our faith rests, that we're set free all thanks to Jesus who here resolutely walked towards Jerusalem to do what he knew needed to be done to secure our freedom. Isn't that a great message to know that the ransom has been paid for us? But there is another side to this as well. While we're now free and heirs in God's kingdom, Jesus says that what this looks like is to be a servant and a slave. What does he mean by this? It's very easy here to go to the conclusion and just say to be a great and successful slave or servant, we need to do more. We need to be more loving, help those in need more, lots of doing. And a few years ago, that's probably where I would have taken this. But as I'm learning a bit more, I think that while that might be where we end up, partly at least, if we look at Jesus as the model, doing more good stuff is not at the heart of what it means to be a servant or slave in God's kingdom or what it means to be great and successful in God's perspective. 
So looking at the model of Jesus, what then is at the heart of being a successful slave or servant? Well, that's a really big question, and there are whole books written on this, and I'm not even going to try and go through capturing it all. So I'm just going to focus on two small parts of this. The first one is having a servant heart, I think, affects how concerned I am about what other people think of me. I've come to realise that I actually think, or I actually am quite concerned about what other people think of me. How do I come across to them? Do they enjoy my company? What do they think about what I'm doing and how well I'm doing it? I've noticed that these are thoughts that are subconsciously going through my head quite a lot. I don't know if you can relate to this at all. But do we find this desire to be highly esteemed in Jesus, who we're using as our model? Well, I don't think we do. Jesus actively avoided publicity and doing miracles on demand, even when it could have really helped his cause. And he told people who he'd healed not to go and share it with other people, which we think that's counterproductive. And instead of going on, getting on the good side of the religious people and the people in power, which again would have helped him gather more and more followers, he openly criticised them when they were being hypocrites. So Jesus didn't mind rocking the boat. Not because he loved an argument, but he loved the truth and was comfortable in who he was and in what he believed. So I think in reading the gospel, it really becomes clear that Jesus did not seem at all concerned about what other people thought of him. But when I think of applying this to us, I immediately think, well, Shouldn't we be concerned with what other people think of us as Christians, that we sort of look not that we're known to be nice people, um, look good, so we present this good picture of what Christians look like? And I don't think this should actually be our focus because we don't actually need to prove anything to anyone anymore. Our job is to perform for an audience of one, and that is God. His is actually the only approval that we should be seeking. Not that this gives us license to be argumentative or disrespectful to people, because that's not Jesus' way either. Love is always at the core of how he relates to people and how we should be relating to people. But I think the life of Jesus does challenge us to not worry so much what other people think about us and rather be focused on what God thinks about us. So that's the, the first point. Second point, I think as servants and slaves of Jesus, we may need to redefine what success looks like. What does it look like for you? Why did you include the person that you did in the word cloud? Was it due to their achievements, their prestige, their impact? When we think about success, how successful was Jesus according to our society's standards? He wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a fancy education. His followers definitely were nothing special. His ministry and his sphere of influence were actually quite limited during his time on earth. It was limited to a tiny part of the Roman Empire. And by the time 
Jesus, um, by the time of his death, all of his followers and his um, friends had left him. They didn't want to know him anymore. Is this success? But then, before his crucifixion, in John 17, Jesus is recorded to have prayed, I brought I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And not long before this, at the transfiguration, God himself said of Jesus, This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So despite his limited ministry and his insignificant stats, Jesus was deemed a success by the highest authority. So something doesn't quite match up here between society's definition and God's definition, it appears. So what I think is that Jesus was successful because he completed the work that God gave him to do. That's really what it came down to, and that's the yardstick to use. Pete Scazzaro is an author of a great book that I'm reading at the moment, and he defines success really nicely. He says, success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. Now, we could unpack that a whole lot more in itself, but I think this is a great definition of success and greatness and what it means to be a servant or a slave. Becoming the person who God wants you to become doing what God calls you to do according in his way and according to his timetable. And the Apostle Paul shares the key to making this possible in Philippians 2 verse 13. This is a verse I find really encouraging. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So in the end, our abilities and our success, they actually come from God. If we want to be truly successful, instead of trying to get better and doing a whole lot of stuff in our own strength, God invites us to come to him. Corinthians 2, uh, chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, But he, that's Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Not just I tolerate them, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Doesn't this again completely flip on its head what our society's view of weaknesses are and of hardships and difficulties? When I'm weak, then I am strong. So my weaknesses are no threat for my success or my ability to serve God. And they're no issue or barrier to God either. In fact, they're they're opportunities for God to show his greatest strength and provision. So instead of worrying about our shortcomings, a much more productive solution is to invite God into the situation and let him work in us according to his good purpose. 
And I know this is a lot easier said than done. It's something that I continue to grow in and times I feel like I'm growing and then I'm wilting or being pruned and then growing a bit again. It's an ongoing process and I'm learning that that's okay. So really what all this boils down to is my identity. Is my identity tied up in what I do and in how others see me, making me seek that prominent seat on the left or right of Jesus? Or is my identity tied up in who I am as a child of God? Does success revolve around what others think about me, my status, my job, my family? Or is it centered around who God says I am and how much I am in tune with him? I think these are really good questions to be asking ourselves and asking God, being in conversation with God. I've noticed lately that I've been listening to a fair bit of news and podcasts um, on all sorts of interesting topics and perspectives, and I've also been watching quite a few shows and movies, and I noticed that I was getting more and more negative as time went on. Not because this stuff was necessarily bad, but I was letting myself be filled with a whole lot of information that often didn't offer any hope. Climate problems, COVID problems, social issues, and this stuff was filling my head and my head felt a little bit like this. Although when Hannah, saw, my wife, saw this picture, she said straight away, that is still way too organised to be the inside of your head. So, so yeah. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> but at the same time as I was doing all this stuff, I also found that I wasn't spending very much time being with God and being filled with him and his view of the world. So Hannah and I talked about this and now we set the alarm early in the morning and we try to get up and spend time with God before we get into the day. Also listen to the news a bit less and I don't automatically, or I try not to, automatically reach for Netflix when I have some spare time. It's, well, for me, very easy to do. So I'm reading instead a, a great book on discipleship. Sometimes I listen to music. Or sometimes I just do nothing and have silence, just be. And now the things going around in my head are, are much calmer, often. And they're more life-giving and I feel like I remember God more during the day. And this is the space then where service to God and other people will flow from much more naturally. So it's still something that I'm working on and I'm not saying we should spend all day just listening to worship music and reading Christian books. That's, that's not what I'm saying here at all. But I do invite you to consider what is filling you? What shapes your perspective on life and the world? Is it social media? Is it the news? Is it a close friend or friendship group that are always in your ear and might not be a great influence? What's filling you? Is it life-giving? So to help develop and realise your new identity as a servant, what practical things can you be putting into place to allow you to just be with God? Listen to him, enjoy him, get your sense of self and purpose and success from him first and foremost. Because everything else, all the doing stuff is going to be flowing from this. 
So as you think about this, I encourage you to always remember that Jesus has paid the ransom for your life and that we are greatest when we let God into every part of our lives, particularly our weaknesses, and let him work a miracle in us and then work through us to serve others. So let's pray as the band comes up. Jesus, thank you so much for being the ransom for us, for setting us free and restoring our relationship with Daddy God. Please reveal to us our heart attitudes as we keep thinking about what it looks like to be a servant or a slave and how we can best love and serve others in this. Thank you that you're maturing us and growing in us the will and ability to live in a way that is more centred on you. You're our rock and our source and our strength. Thank you, Jesus.